Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Janali Basek dropping by the studio here in New York, Bloomberg's investment banking reporter, to get us up to speed on the numbers. Shanali, let's just start with a tough, tough quarter for the capital markets business. It was really tough, especially given that J.P. Morgan is one of the biggest bond trading houses across the world. He didn't say much, Jamie Dimon, didn't say much in the press release yet about what the forward-looking guidance is for this business, but he definitely was hurt by the fixed income business and equities was pretty much in line with the analysts expected. It definitely wasn't enough to help trading revenues overall. Q4 is ancient history now. We expected this to be bad. The only thing that's happened is, is it's coming worse than many people expected it to be. Similar story with Citigroup yesterday. Citigroup traded lower on the numbers. Then as the earnings call started and we started to look forward through to Q1 to 2019, enthusiasm built up. What does 2019 look like? And could we see a similar story today with JP Morgan? We could see a similar story with JP Morgan, but at the first glance, at least, the the lending figures are kind of weak. We're going to want to see what Jamie Dimon says about the strength of the economy moving forward. At Citigroup, they were saying trade wars and all this geopolitical turmoil might not hurt until the fourth quarter of this year or later in the year. So a couple of quarters of stability might be really good for these banks. So walk me through the loan growth story at the moment, because one thing that jumps out to a lot of analysts in the early part of the release was just the credit provisions, more money set aside to cover potentially souring loans. What's the story you're seeing, Shanali, within the numbers? Right. The provisions for credit losses higher is really a problem. Our colleagues on Top Live point out that it's mostly from the credit card business, which is good news that it's not all from the mortgages, especially because mortgages have been having a tough market both at JP Morgan and at Citigroup. So, you know, we're going to want to see color about the strength of the American consumer, both in the mortgage markets and then how much JP Morgan is extending loans in the small business market. Just working our way through the rest of the bank for the investment Mm -hmm. bank, a theme that's emerging at the moment is M&A and advisory is doing okay. Debt underwriting is terrible, which you'd expect given what happened with leveraged loans and fixed income in terms of supply going into the year end. Just in terms of M&A, is there a good pipeline here, a good story to sell for 2019? For 2019, the pipeline, he's going to have to comment on it right now because the SEC is not even taking deals. And so the first quarter of this year, there is a bit of a backlog. There's a lot of turmoil and, you know, people don't like to do deals when the stock market is moving all over the place. You don't know what you're paying. And so we're going to want to see what he has to say about that. And we're going to want to see equity and debt underwriting figures turn around. They're both down at the end of the last year. Shanali Basset, great to have us with us this morning. Brian Levitt joining us, Oppenheimer Fund Senior Investment Strategist. He joins us on the phone here in New York. Brian, it's another big consensus overweight. We saw this story play out in 2018 as well. How does it play out in 2019 for you? So I think the big story in in 2019 is that we're actually having a a slowing economy, but probably a more uh, a better environment for rates and inflation. So I actually think the markets will have a good year in 2019, but it goes back to the point where investors are going to be favoring true growth companies over, um, you know, more of the 
cyclical names in the United States or names that are um, more value-oriented. So it's a shift. I mean, last year was all about better growth, but not great policy. This year is going to be about slower growth. Uh, We suspect better policy, but that takes us back to an environment where investors, in our mind, bid up the true growth companies. So, Brian, what does that mean for the nation's banks here in America as we get the earnings yesterday from Citigroup and today from JP Morgan and both of them, just in terms of the numbers for Q4, which we had expectations come in for already, disappointing? Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I would think that in a slowing growth environment, an environment where the, the yield curve remains um, relatively flat, that's not typically an environment where the financial sector, the nation's banks um, are among the leaders in the market. I don't, I don't expect that we're going into an environment where, um, you know, financials are a, a significant drag on the market, but I just suspect market leadership will come from elsewhere. Brian, fascinating to me that the market is already getting ahead of where the data is coming through. And what I mean by that, if you just look at the recent survey from Bank of America, the latest fund manager survey showing GDP and earnings growth expectations totally plummeting. You see the numbers coming out of China, absolutely terrible. But what I'm seeing is a market adjusting for maybe a rebound later this year. I'm looking at the high yield story in Asia and China, the junk bond story. A lot more people constructive on that. There's a market that's bid. Brian, is that a little bit of a head fake? Is that the market going too far ahead of the data or is that a story you'd get behind? No, that's a story I would get behind. Look, I think that what's what's transpired is, you know, the U.S., we had a lot of stimulus. Uh, the U.S. decoupled from the rest of the world. That led to a strengthening dollar, uh, money being sucked out of other parts of the world into the United States, oil prices collapsing, and that all kind of fed on itself. And the Fed compounded it by suggesting they were going to raise interest rates multiple times. We're now seeing the flip side of that, in which the U.S. is slowing back to trend, yeah, China um, China is weakening, but um, you're starting to see some stimulus come through. New credit growth looks favorable. So basically, a stimul- the catalyst for the rest of the world is the U.S. moving back towards a trend level of growth, the rest of the world generally hanging in, the dollar moderating. That's actually a better environment than what we had in 2018 when there was really good growth in the United States, but policy that was pretty disruptive to the rest of the world. There seems to be a hope, Brian that the stimulus coming through from China will be enough to stabilise the economy. feels very incremental to me, and there seems to be a shift as well over what they want to stimulate the economy with, moving away from infrastructure spending, moving away from leaning on monetary policy too heavily, and leaning into things like tax cuts. Now, have the incremental moves been enough? Will they be enough to turn the story around? It's a great point, because what you had in 2015 and 2016 was significant investment that led to significant Chinese growth that lifted up growth all around the world, and that was the catalyst. We're not getting that this time. So, in essence, what you're getting is um, efforts to, to stabilize Chinese growth near a trend level. And so the catalyst for the rest of the world and these higher-yielding markets that you're talking about is not going to be massive of Chinese stimulus. It's going to be what we call stimulus light. So that happens, that stabilization happens as the U.S. slows towards trend. 
it doesn't look exactly like 15 and 16, but markets could play out similarly because similar to the 2015 and 2016, yeah. um, emerging markets have been beaten up, um, and, and you know investor sentiment has gotten really weak. The dollar is pretty strong, and you know this this stimulus light out of China could be the catalyst to unlock some of that volume. So, value. Brian, final final question for a lot of investors out there who are waiting for the data to confirm the turnaround. Are you saying that by the time they've got that, they're going to miss the big chunk of the upside. Yeah, I mean that's how it goes. I um, like I don't think that this cycle ends anytime soon. There's really not inflation anywhere in the world. I don't see significant excess anywhere in the world. So I suspect this is a cycle that goes on longer than people expect. I think concerns of 2019 or 2020 recession or hyperbole. Um, investors should be investing. This is one of those big bull markets, long-term secular bull markets that we get in our lives. I've been told you get three of them: one you're too young, one you're too old, take advantage of the one in the middle, and, and that's that's what I think investors need to be doing. Hey, Brian, always great to catch up with you, mate. Oppenheimer Fund Senior Investment Strategist to run us through the markets and respond to the latest earnings. With us now, Ken Leon, uh, CFRA. He's been wonderful about giving his bank uh, perspective. Ken, I'm looking at the BKX, the Keith Brienton Woods uh, Bank Index, down 31%, maybe at its worst, now down 21%. A nice bounce. Frankly, folks, it's an elegant chart showing south. Ken, can you be long banks right now? You have to be cautious. So um, these stocks are beaten up. The bull case, if you are long, would be they're trading below book value. The return of capital is significant for buybacks and dividends. Um, some of the businesses are stable, but it was a risk-off environment. It hurt them in the fourth quarter. Yeah. hurt them significantly in December. Okay, I'm looking at size. And, folks, one of the things I always get upset about media coverage of the banks is we forget how large – these companies are. For example, J.P. Morgan's only $100 gazillion that comes in. They take $0.36 cents, uh, down to the operating income line. Their net income would make GM blush 25%. Net income is extraordinary. Ken, within trading, how much of it is a variable cost and how much is it a fixed cost as they rationalize out two and three years? Trading to total net revenues for J.P. Morgan is important. It's just under 20% of total net revenues. Um, you have to feed the beast, the infrastructure for both equity and separately fixed yeah. income currency. Um, so essentially, if you don't have that volume, and we didn't have that volume in the fixed income side, uh, even with some of the ratcheting down over the last six, seven years with Dodd-Frank, uh, still, there wasn't enough activity. That hurt. And also, you got to get the trade right in terms of the higher, uh, riskier areas of fixed income, the derivatives. The big story in Q4 was that it was bad. Um, the debate, I guess, Ken, is to what degree was it bad? Um, we're finding out it was worse than a lot of people thought. Fine. Q4, ancient history. Let's get into 2019. A lot of people are looking for a window into the broader economy. Show me the loan growth. How's that story progressing? Do you see some positive signs so far from Citigroup, from J.P. Morgan, Ken? The first quarter is very important. It's typically one of the strongest quarters of the year for J.P. Morgan. Um, what comes in reliably has been 
the consumer loans up 3% in fourth quarter, driven mostly by consumer and credit card. Commercial lending was down 2%. Um, that's mostly on a downtick on uh, construction real estate loans. But, um, yeah, I mean, loan growth, which is a large base in terms of revenues, uh, has to do better. Uh, the, you know, the other factor, and Tom gets at this, is that you got two buckets, loans, uh, banking, and then you also got net interest income. Um, and we don't have these steep ascension of rates, which means net interest income will grow, but the non-parts, as you're addressing here, loans, has to do a little bit better in 2019. Credit provisions is a story for this morning as well, Ken. The numbers in JP Morgan suggested a bit of a provision build. What are your thoughts on that? What do you see in the numbers? Um, too hard to go through every one of the segments. I, I think it's kind of mixed. Um, I didn't see – there was nothing episodic in Q4 2018 to say that they're behind the curve in terms of provisions, allowance for DAPFL accounts, or higher reserves. It's another way, of course, also to get better net income. It's just, you know, don't be too aggressive. In the old days, Ken, I'd ask you this question. So in honor of the old days, I'll ask it right now. (laughs) Agony brings mergers and acquisitions. Are we going to see a new consolidation in various and sundry banks? So M&A in 2018 was a significant year, but it's concentrated. It's large deals. Large deals, if they get done from announced to completed, take 12 to 18 months. Um, that will be, I think, the story in 2019 as well. Uh, it's mostly the Americas and Europe, not to worry about Asia uh, for M&A. Uh, but to be firing on all cylinders... Um, J.P. Morgan today and City yesterday, they got to get fire up higher growth out of equity underwriting. The debt underwriting is kind of fading because that was used with tax benefits no longer there to fund stock repurchases. Hey, Ken, great to catch up with you. Busy morning for you, I'm sure. So thank you very much for giving us your time. Ken Leon, Global Director of Research yeah. at CFRA. So we've had J.P. Morgan. We've had City. We wait on Goldman over the next couple of days and Morgan yeah. Stanley too, Tom. I think Goldman will be fascinating. I keep calling it a non-bank. I know that that upsets Mr. Solomon and Mr. Blankfein. But there it is. John, the green today, Westminster, bells ringing, drums. I couldn't even hear the guests next to us. It was it was on the edge of John Bonham of, of Led Zeppelin. Beautiful. It was drumming John Beautiful. Bonham at Westminster. John, you know this is a band from, you know, Jimmy Page and Plantis from the Midlands and John, you know, Led <laughs> Zeppelin. I thought you were going to give me the history 50, of Led Zeppelin. Fifty-five zero. They're 50 out of London. Ago. Come on, great album of all time. Don't tell Robert Plant he's out of London. And John, now we have Victoria Houston with us from the Institute of Economic Affairs Senior Council, the International Trade and Competition Unit. Victoria, you are away from the politics. You are away from the actual voting tonight and on into tomorrow and the next day. At what risk is the UK trade right now? What is the single thing 
that the United Kingdom will give up in trade with any kind of defeat for Prime Minister May? Well, let's be clear, a defeat for the Prime Minister and for the withdrawal agreement at this point only means that at this point they have to come back with another plan um, in um, three sitting days' time. So while I'm sure if the vote were to to reject the deal today, there would be some repercussions in market sentiment. It wouldn't in and of itself mean anything. However, if it meant that ultimately the deal was rejected and the Prime Minister wasn't able to bring it back to the House in in any renegotiated form, and so the deal ultimately couldn't be agreed at all, and come the 29th of March, we then leave the European Union without a withdrawal agreement, then you know, that's when that's when the possible disruptions to trade would kick in. I, I, I mean, the, the disruption to trade in the messaging in all the newspapers this morning is this measurement of how long the pain will be. The, the leave people say, yes, there's going to be pain. We'll get over it and we'll move on. And the remaining people in four different shades, from what I can tell, say, no, there's going to be a permanent disruption to trade for an island nation. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think there's two different sort of sides to that. There's the the question of the immediate disruption at the ports because we've introduced, we would have to introduce a new uh, range of administrative requirements to import and export goods. And there are fears being raised of huge queues and tailbacks on the roads leading into Dover and Calais, the, the main cross-channel trade ports. And then there's the, the aspect of the more long-term structural impact on our trade. And I think the first side, the immediate practical steps, I think most people probably acknowledge that that would only last a couple of months at worst while um, yeah. businesses adapt <clears throat> and the government belatedly starts making the necessary steps that it should really have been making um, since immediately after the referendum to to make the trade flow okay well the, the government the government will take quote unquote necessary steps but on a microeconomic basis almost a mic- microcosm basis every single business will adapt and adjust in the United Kingdom in Ireland in Scotland in Europe and around the world to the reality of London just separating away from Europe, or do you doubt that that will happen? Well, we're not leaving the continent of Europe. We're leaving a set of political institutions called the European Union. And in fact, the number of businesses in the United Kingdom that trades with the European Union is extremely small um, in in you know, in aggregate terms, there's only um, a small percentage, maybe 6% of all businesses in, in the United Kingdom actually do any trade with the EU. And it doesn't account for that much of our, our GDP, actually. Um, although it's a, it's a serious and material part of our GDP. I think it's about 10, <clears throat> 10, 8 or 10% of our GDP yeah. is a constituted of trade with the EU. So the idea that we can't survive and the economy will, will fall off a cliff and um, everyone will, you know, end up scavenging on the streets for food is is really quite misplaced. Well, some of that is out there, to say the least. Uh, Victoria, <laughs> it certainly is. Um, thank you so much. Uh, greatly, greatly appreciate it this morning. Uh, a fair senior counsel at the International Trade and Competition uh, Unit. We greatly appreciate that.
Paul Sweeney in New York. I'm Tom Keene in London. And with us, John Taylor of Stanford University. Professor Taylor, I've had the honor of speaking to you any number of times about this, but let's revisit. Taylor, 1980. John, this is a few years ago. You were 16, a, a protege. I remember this well. And you and Guillermo Calvo talking about sticky prices, nominal rigidities, and wage and price stickiness. And to bring that forward to where we are now, Professor Taylor, the conundrum for America has been wages that wouldn't go up. How sticky are wages right now? That's Thanks for bringing that research up. But, uh, people still talking about it all after all these years. And I think the reason is that uh, stickiness really had to reflect underlying fundamentals over time. So if you don't have productivity growth, if you don't have the things that uh, raise uh, right. earnings, you don't get the wages. That's that's what it's all about. And this is important from London, Professor Taylor, because if I go back to Clement Attlee, World War II, the mystery that Keynes faced of ugly unemployment, this election, to, I mean, this vote tonight, rather, harkens back to the 20s in England, which weren't like the 20s in America. We had an industrial revolution then. Maybe they didn't in England, Ramsey Donald, 1924. And the sum of this is we've been here before, haven't we? Yes, uh, it's, there's an up and down similarities in the cycle. I think the big decision in uh, London right now is key. I think they've laid it out. I don't know what's going to happen. You, you're closer than I am. But uh, you did have some good times in the 20s. They didn't last. The uh, 30s were terrible uh, all over the world. Professor, we're experiencing in this country something, uh, you know, I guess a little bit unique. That is a partial government shutdown. Do you expect this shutdown to have any impact on the economy? The markets seem to be sh- you know, pretty much shrugging it off. Yeah, I don't think so at this point. People are talking about the Fed's not getting the data coming in, but they have less ways to understand what the data is. I think there's certain people that are, uh, are hurting, that's for sure. But the overall economy uh, thus far is doing fine. I think there's other, other factors, of course, uh, in the economy that people are talking about, which tend to be bigger than the shutdown in terms of the overall economy. Well, and what are some of those that are on the top of your list? Well, I've actually been positive about some of the, the changes we had uh, in the last year and a half, the tax reform, the regulatory reform. We talked about the Fed already. Yeah. Uh, the, the concerns <clears throat> are, are, are just as can't doesn't last forever, and we've had a lot of volatility in the markets, and people are talking about yeah. that a lot, too. The history, John Taylor, from 1980, and this is Stan Fisher, I believe, in 77 and goes on to Mankiw and others, is if we look at wages and the overlays you mentioned earlier of productivity and technology, one of the new themes, and folks, this is a strange word that's not spoken too often, there are monopsonistic tendencies within our companies and within the dominance of companies where they control the wage now like they used to not to. Do you buy the idea that it's a different wage calculus now because of the dominance of business? I think there's some evidence uh, that people have pointed to about monopsony. Orly Ashenfelder is one of them at uh, Princeton. I don't think it's uh, affecting the overall trend in wages. I think that really is more productivity. That's more the basic economy. But yeah, you can find elements of this, elements of 
Yeah. Probably just differences from competition all the time. That's why we yeah. need to have more competitive markets. Just because of time, Paul Sweeney and I, Professor Taylor, have to switch to the acclaim of rules versus discretion. Where are the rules right now? Is there a rule book for Chairman Powell? Well, you know, they've uh, written a lot in the last year and a half about rules in their monetary report. He's talked about it. Uh, the new vice chair, Rick Claren, has done fundamental work about it. They're referring to it in their in their speeches. So I think they're they're trying to get back to this. It's it's never rocket science, but there's some good degree of uh, predictability they emphasize a lot, whether it's the balance sheet uh, actions or interest rate actions. So. We've been off of this for a while, so it's not easy to get back, but I, I think you're seeing some signs. So, Professor, just following up on that, uh, particularly on the Fed and its unwinding of its balance sheet, how aggressive do you believe the Fed should be going forward with this balance sheet? You know, I think they've done a good job since the old taper tantrum, which was quite chaotic, remember, back five years ago. But they learned from that and have been quite clear about what they're trying to do. It's... Uh, it's predictable, and that's that's what's good. I think there's lots of debate about its impact. I don't see much impact on the markets at this point because it's predictable and understandable. I hope they continue it that way. Of course, they'll be adjusting it, and there's a big decision they're making uh, this year about where they're going eventually with the balance sheet. So, Professor, as a former Treasury official, we would love to get your thoughts on trade. Uh, it looks like this administration is much more comfortable with um, unilateral uh, and bilateral type uh, negotiations and after the renegotiation. How do you feel or how do you view this administration's view towards trade and, and how do you think that's going to contribute or hinder the global economy? Well, it's, it's quite different and they've, they've redone NAFTA, of course, and there's more discussions with Europe in different ways and the big question now is China. I think what they've pointed to is there's some, some trade practices in China they're trying to adjust. I think if the Chinese responds to that, it'll be like what happened with the new NAFTA, what happened with Europe. But we're not there yet. I, I think it's it's different. Uh, the strategy is different. I don't think the goal is different, quite frankly. The goal is to reduce trade barriers around the world, but the strategy to get there, what's happening is different than in the past. Well, you mentioned China. How concerned are you by maybe just the rhetoric that we're seeing going back and forth between uh, the U.S. and China. Is this something that the Chinese, from their perspective, need to get something done uh, with the U.S.? How do you how do you think that's going to play out? Yeah, I think the Chinese do need to get something done. There's, there's various things. Uh, there's tariffs. There's uh, restrictions on ownership. There's various things they could do. And I think the the more that there's a focus on those details unfortunately details are hard to hard to focus on but the more there is the better that it'll be and it'll take away well, some of this <clears throat> clamoring let's not be strangers this year uh professor taylor thank you so much john taylor is at stanford university his public service at treasury uh, during uh 2001 and 2002 is noted and of course his work in monetary theory uh, needs no uh, introduction or review. John Taylor of Stanford uh, University. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.